1: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Alim Mahabir, your host for this episode. We are very grateful to be joined by Vivian non Vivian is Professor of English and Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion in the College of Arts and Sciences at Indiana University, Bloomington. She's a scholar of Caribbean literature, food studies, ethnic American literature, postmodernism, and public popular culture. She previously wrote The Immigrant Kitchen, Food, Ethnicity, and Diaspora, published by Ohio State University Press in 2016, and Exhibiting Slavery, the Caribbean postmodern novel as museum, from University of Virginia Press in 2009. Today, we're featuring her newest book, Caribbean American Narratives of Belonging, also published by Ohio State university press in 2023 a very very warm welcome to the podcast vivian very happy to be talking to you and excited about the conversation i want to have
2: well thank you i'm excited to talk to you as well
1: right first off this is a question i basically ask everyone could you tell me a little bit more about yourself you could go way beyond what i just said in the intro you know personal (laughs) story how you came to be who you are today what experiences prompted you to write the book we're talking about?
2: Okay. Well, that's a very interesting prompt. I am someone who has spent the bulk of my adult life living in the United States, but I was born and grew up in Puerto Rico, and my father was active duty National Guard, which meant that at age 10, our family moved to the military base for Buchanan on the island in Puerto Rico. And so that's when I began learning English and in full time, like we learn English one hour a day as a regular part of our schooling in Puerto Rican schools. But I didn't start learning uh, the language with real immersion until I was 10. And so it was an interesting circumstance because I had um, a cohort of friends who were American born and whose parents were in the military. And then I had a cohort of friends who were Puerto Rican like me and whose parents were either affiliated with the, with the army or armed forces, or their parents were teachers at the school. And so they got to come to the school. So I was always interested in, and I never understood very clearly where the difference was between, um, being, fully American, but in Puerto Rico and being fully Puerto Rican, but in this American space. And so I was intrigued by that when my family relocated to Colorado towards the end of my high school experience due to my sister's um, medical condition. Um, That's my first experience then of being in the continental United States. And it became very clear to me that the folks I interacted with in that space didn't have a frame of reference for what it meant to talk to a Puerto Rican family, right? So we weren't Mexican and we weren't Jamaican, so they didn't know where to put us in terms of categories. And so I was always having to explain what it meant to be from Puerto Rico and how we were both like and not like other countries in the Caribbean. And so it's been a lifelong uh, consideration For me, I've done the bulk of my work focusing on either um, fiction from the Caribbean and about the Caribbean or then food memoirs and how people negotiate their experience of traveling from one birth country to another and back and forth that way. But in the current book, I wanted to look at how... People with Caribbean heritage who have made their lives in the United States consider, write about, imagine what it means for them to contribute to the the ongoing formation of American culture and politics and intellectual life as part of the United States. I thought that that was an interesting um, part of the discourse or dialogue that's missing. We're all... um, very familiar with more um, interactive diasporic formations, the relationship you keep back to your island. But I was interested in looking at how there seems to be a, a bit of a crit- critical mass of artists, entertainers, of um, politicians, and of just generally public people who are speaking about their experience of growing up in the United States with Caribbean parents or moving to the United States um, in raising children who are born here and how much you share and don't share about your Caribbean life, but also how do you contribute to the society in which you find yourself living? And that's the origin for the book for me. I wanted to see how that experience of of speaking as an American um, manifested itself in the context of politics, in fiction, in activism, and in musical theater. Among others
1: thanks for that answer that's a um, really interesting response there's so much things we could dig into to dig into sorry um, when we um, as we conduct this interview but I, I'm really surprised um, you said you had to explain to people you know, about Puerto Rico because isn't Puerto Rico a part of the United States or
2: Yes, it is. It's a, it's a territory, but other Americans don't necessarily know that. So, um, What? Yeah. That's
1: crazy to me. That but is it, crazy to me.
2: <laughs> I don't know that the U.S. Virgin Islands are also like Puerto Rico territories and that we are U.S. citizens by birth. Um, to say nothing about Guam, which is still also part of the United States. Yeah. As a professor, I have made it my duty whenever I can to to introduce my students to the concept of what where the u.s. extends so including then of course the u.s territory so that students don't just think the continental US and maybe remember Alaska and Hawaii I want them to have a broader sense of how far the United States extends and so that they then can understand the ambivalence because I don't want to um, downplay the fact that Puerto Ricans uh, are very ambivalent about being part of the united states but not fully part of the united states right so i i can vote per president when i live here in indiana but i cannot if my main residence wasn't in, in puerto rico but i could vote for the primaries in puerto rico which is why I have that but not the full vote it's it's a very complex circumstance yeah
1: right right but that's um really interesting because when I think of Puerto Rico, I think United States. So (laughs) (laughs) it's really surprising people from the United States, do even know the extent of what is the United States. Do you all do geography in school? (laughs) (laughs) Not
2: enough, not enough. But You know, it's also, it goes both ways because when I was growing up in Puerto Rico and still to this day, I mean, we have a very Clear sense of ourselves as Puerto Ricans, uh, and then the Americans are other folks, right? Even though we have U.S. citizenship, and so I'd like to say that Puerto Rico thinks of itself as a member of the Caribbean, especially when hurricane season comes by, but also more in dialogue with Latin America in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, so it's mutually agreed upon ignorance of the other, I think, is a good. <laughs> <laughs> okay interesting
1: description of that well um i'm from the caribbean myself um, i'm trinidadian so mm-hmm. so there's a lot i could relate to in the book but caribbean american you know uh, not so much so right but it's mm-hmm. go ahead no you please you go ahead first
2: well i was i was Going to to chime in when you said that the Caribbean-American, not so much, it, it's an interesting and useful category that I wanted to explore for the work it can do. But I don't want to pretend that it's a way that I describe myself or that other people with ties to the Caribbean describe themselves first and foremost, right? So I'm always Puerto Rican. I can say I'm Caribbean-American, if that means anything in a context in which I use it. But I wanted to explore the ways in which it could be a rubric that might facilitate the understanding of a a group of people who are not defined only by um, race or ethnicity or um, religion or language, but rather with a variety of all these things, but ties to a particular geographical region.
1: Mm-hmm. The reason I ask because a debate that often comes up, um, you know, I think I talked about this in classes at university, um, maybe even in high school. Um, is there even a uniform Caribbean identity at all? You know, given there's so much unique cultures, histories in each of the different territories, you know, there's Anglophone, Hispanophone, Francophone, um, islands, you know,
2: and the Dutch.
1: So, don't forget the Dutch. I, I can't <laughs> forget the Dutch. I, I guess Dutchophone. I'm, I'm not sure. But... <laughs>
2: I don't know either. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, so I, w- I was going to ask you um, to speak more on, you know, what does a Caribbean identity mean and how did you define or characterize this for the purposes of the book?
2: Sure. So my first memory of having a Caribbean consciousness, just Caribbean rather than Puerto Rican, would have to be during hurricane season before I was even 10. Uh, We'd track, we'd listen to the radio and track hurricanes on this Bacardi map of the Caribbean and see with a wax pencil, see how far or or how close the hurricane was getting. And so seeing all the islands and seeing how vulnerable we were had a deep impact in how I thought of myself as part of uh, an archipelago. Right. But when I moved to the United States and I started hearing, you know, this like lack of frame, I guess, which people could understand when I said where I was from, um, it, it, it intrigued me. And so one of the ways I heard people talk about themselves was through ties to continents. So either European or Latin American or African, you know, but, but the Caribbean, because it's so many small islands and a large region, I thought that that was interesting in terms of the possibilities it offered to organize ourselves for others. So as later on in my career, I, um, I was, I served as director of the Asian Americans, uh, studies program in the College of Arts and Sciences. And I saw the benefit of having a broad umbrella term like that, Asian American, which really has people from various different regions of the world, right? South Asian, East Asian, um, Southeast Asian. And it doesn't fully describe individual groups' experience, but it serves to mark space, to, to show belonging, uh, and then to, to facilitate entry into dialogues that were going on. So I wanted to see to what degree we could use a term like Caribbean American, which the U.S. government had embraced in 2005 when it created or, or deemed June to be Caribbean American Heritage Month as a category of, of American and wanted to play with that in full acknowledgement that again it's a it's a container that that marks space but it doesn't fully describe people's experience because when we think about the caribbean i don't think there's there are historical circumstances we share but not in the same way in every island and so i think the caribbean is is a sense of uh hmm. I, I'm most intrigued by the variations on a theme, right? And so I thought that that's something that all, not all of us are island people. go back to the Dutch, right So there are folks who are in the Caribbean who are in the South American mainland. but but for the most part, we have um, contact with the Caribbean Sea in ways that that help us think the coming and going, right. And so that openness to to a real. I don't want to say diversity, I want to say variety of experience and richness of cultures intermixing is something that we bring to the conversation in terms of what's going on in the American landscape and culture and politics that is distinctly unlike typical um, black, white, uh, just color line fixed binary ways of thinking in the United States. And I thought the United States was at a point where it could welcome this more richly nuanced um, point of view in a discourse to push it, to reimagine itself.
1: Thanks for that answer. All right, Um, digging into identity a bit more. I think you mentioned it in the, the the introductory answer you gave is the idea of um, relation identity. I think you drew on Glissant's poetics of relation to understand Caribbean-American experiences of belonging. And you make the distinction between relation identity, as I said, and root, right? Could I, For those who may not be familiar, could you explain this, I guess, bin, binary, binaristic framework, how it relates... The understanding Caribbean-American experiences of belonging.
2: Yes. So it's, it's a very interesting thing because um, Lisanne was thinking about the role of water and how water, um, you know, the submarine energy really defines the area that is the Caribbean. And so um, on the one hand, relation identity is where you you define yourself in terms of your interactions with others and it, root identity is it goes as its name implies more deeply into one set of either a geographical region or um a set group of people so so it's more i would think tend to think vertical whereas relation identity you make through interactions with others, so it's more horizontal, and I think to that degree, um, it's helpful. Those those metaphors of direction are helpful for us to understand what I suggest is applicable about a Caribbean American experience, which is you you can't be the totality of one island isn't doesn't encompass what the whole Caribbean is, so you have to be in light in relation with the other ones for the the Caribbean doesn't exist in isolation. You have to be in relation with one another. But at the same time, what we bring when we come into U- US context is that we don't we don't speak for all, what we define ourselves in contradistinctions to others, but together as opposed to one or the other.
1: Right. Um, And it it seems to to go beyond, you know, more simpler conceptions of Caribbean identity, you would say?
2: Yeah, because, I mean, so what's unusual about the Caribbean is because of all the uh, experiences of colonialism, of um, enslaved labor and uh, forced immigration of people, so indenture, there are so many waves of people who have made this area their home. And so the interaction of cultures is, is ongoing. It's the population's hybrid. It's constantly having to negotiate across difference to reach common goals.
1: Definitely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And that's what's so wonderful about the Caribbean and how I think it it exemplifies relation identity, whereas Root is really, I mean, I don't want to say either is better, but I do think root can also extend to diasporic circles that really stay very narrowly connected. Um, And so I wanted to say that relation is more appropriate for Caribbean Americans because they're trying to bring the totality of what uh, people are to a dialogue that usually wants to reduce folks to, to something easy to understand. And we make that process, hard um, purpose. We don't want to be reduced. We want to embrace the the various different influences, uh, beliefs, histories that that inform the way we experience life.
1: Right. It's sort of um, combining um, the two identities together, Caribbean and American, to become, I guess, something like something different, something maybe more than what was originally what we came from? Like, do you see that?
2: I do. And what's important is not that maintaining just your own identity is bad, it's just that um, that's one way to be. That's the other thing. One can alternate between having a root and an uh, um relation identity. I think that's important to acknowledge as well. Um, in some contexts, it's important to be rooted, but in the others, it's important to to really draw from that relation and interaction. So, I mean, so I'm from Puerto Rico. My dad's family came to Puerto Rico from Lebanon, what was Syria at the time, but from Lebanon, and my mom's family um, is both from Puerto Rico and also from Spain. So, I'm a big mix, <laughs> and I bring those uh, kind of mixtures. Into how I experience being Puerto Rican, and so then when I moved to the United States, I have all that mess, <laughs> and then uh, a reaction to where I am. I have moved all across the United States, so so all of that informs how I try to apply some of the foundational kind of beliefs or systems that that were Caribbean in my upbringing into how I raise, for example, my own children. Who are now grown people, so I don't raise them anymore. I just bask in the in the glow of having gotten them through a adolescence. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's
1: um, that's reconciling all those different identities into something more. I think that's maybe a good way to see it. Um, as you said, um, Caribbean identity itself is so um, diverse, and as a result, there's so many, numerous and equally diverse cultural products, um, works of art. um, uh, You looked at in the book, um, books, movies, comic books, plays, and so on, you know? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Well, so to give you a concrete example, I know I've been a little bit abstract, but looking at um, presidential memoirs, uh, campaign books, I wanted to do that because Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz both claim Cuban ancestry, and they each gave pride of place to their parents' to escape from Cuba stories, and they both had to go back and correct them, so because they got the details wrong or they got the timing wrong. And so that's one example. Uh, my larger claim is that Caribbean Americans are giving the the what has become iconic American story, right? Tracing your heritage back to some immigrants, um, and they're spinning that for their own purposes. And and so it was important for both of these candidates who wanted to be the nominee to be president to talk about their family's immigrant roots, but in this valiant, um, anti-communist way. And that, of course, that effort got marred by their own inaccuracies. And in the case of Ted Cruz, his refusal to adjust it. In the case of Marco Rubio, his constant revision... <laughs> In an effort to get closer to the truth, right? So it's it's an interesting thing because the Caribbean Americans either themselves don't were born in the U.S. or were born in uh, the Caribbean and brought to the United States at an early enough age that they don't have too many reliable memories of life in the Caribbean. So that's where I fall kind of in between. I moved to the continental United States when I was 16. So I have had a childhood that was full and complex in Puerto Rico. And I have my memories that are distinct from my parents' memories, but not all the writers I look at or performers or cultural producers have that rich uh, a time in their family's home island, right? So for them, the Caribbean can also exist as a cultural construct that isn't Inherently um, lived experience for them.
1: Yeah, that's um, that's interesting because I something I worry about, and I guess again a, a bit personal here um, <laughs> is I, I've often thought about migrating and I'm based in the Caribbean now, but a fear that comes into my mind is you know my children if i do have them one day they're not going to be able to have this caribbean identity Uh, it, it might become you know erased um like though like um maybe of marco rubio's experience as he highlighted in the book the reason for those inaccuracies not having a clear conception of of the caribbean not having those lived experiences you know, so that's something I, I, I've i thought about and I, I, I worry about iPad. So I, I could say at I, I relate to that at some level.
2: <laughs> yeah. And that's why I wanted to look at the children's books, the picture books. So Juno Diaz wrote one and then I looked at the ones that were available in my local library because I am in a landlocked state and I was very curious to see what was available for my kids are older now, but but if I wanted to teach my children about the Caribbean through picture books, what could I do? And that was an interesting exercise. Um but at the same time, there's a distinction right between it is expensive to go back to the Caribbean. So I've I've taken my family back. Yep. Very
1: expensive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> know. But,
2: but it's feasible, right? In a way that mm-hmm. it did was not possible for people who were Cuban-American to go back to Cuba until there was a a certain kind of political um, break and it became possible that you didn't have to just justify the trip through some sort of special group that was going to do special approved things. Nowadays, one can fly to Cuba uh, if one has the money and the inclination, but but it wasn't always the case, right? So even then, when I'm claiming Caribbean-American immigrant tale. It was different for Cubans than it was for anyone else. And then for Puerto Ricans and folks from the U.S. Virgin Islands, we don't have the trouble of having to immigrate so we can just hop on a plane and go there and back. So as you were talking about you know, the, the lived experience, it reminded me of Sonia Sotomayor, whose, whose family did not have much money. And so when she was little, she would go spend the summer with her relatives in Puerto Rico and so even though her the, she was born in the states and the majority of her life has been in the united states she spent a good chunk of time in puerto rico having to live life in spanish uh and in her memoir she talks about that's seeing other puerto ricans be doctors lawyers professionals roles they did not occupy in the new york of her everyday life made her dream big in a way that not going back to the Caribbean might have shortchanged her. So if you were to migrate at any point and could afford to go back and allow your children some experience of what life is like in Trinidad and Tobago, then they would have some lived experience that was distinct from yours, but but of their own. And that's an interesting kind of uh, overlap that say, for example, Indian Americans, and here I'm pivoting more to Kamala Harris, right, our current vice president in the United States, whose father's Jamaican, whose mother was Indian. And so she spent her memoirs, not beautiful, I will have to say its it's functional, but the prose is not as good as others. But she spent time as a child in Jamaica. And then, you know, that allows her to claim a certain kind of experience of Jamaica that her father, who was a lifelong you know, back and forth uh, person, can't deny her as much as he would like to try, right? He can't say that her experience of Jamaica is illegitimate because it's hers. And then other folks I look at in the book talk about the trepidation they feel going to their parents' birthplace as adults, because they don't speak the language or like, um, you know. I they...
1: think um, in the book you mentioned, Corine yeah. Jean-Pierre.
2: Jean-Pierre, yeah. She So she she's interesting because she was born in Guadeloupe. She lived in Paris for a while and then was um, had the rest of her childhood and life in the United States, but she didn't speak Haitian Creole and she went as a graduate student. So it was, uh, and then had the experience of people calling her Blanc. Right So racializing her Americanness in a way that was foreign to her as a black woman to be called white, but culturally, it, it was a conflated kind of identity and that was real shock.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, so many um, different you know works you you, you looked at, I, I have to say um, you talked about the the picture books. And uh, the campaign books um, I have to mention that'm um, it was interesting you know see you seeing you analyze really f- forms of media that typically aren't subject to really aren't made, far of a better word popular and you kind of I've subjected it to some sort of analysis and see how it is indeed relevant you know to form in, um, you know that Caribbean identity or Caribbean sense of belonging. Um, I, I think another um, form of media you would have looked at also are YA, young adult novels, um, a genre not often taken seriously. Um, but you discussed a lot of YA novels uh, in your book on how they speak to Caribbean American belonging. So I myself, I'm not a, a YA Fun. Um, not even when I was a, a YA myself uh, a long time ago. But you know, in reading that chapter, I was really um, surprised to find myself actually really engaged in the narratives you described in these books. Um, the characters, the ex- experiences, um, very rich and in some cases very darker than what I would have expected. Um. Could, could you highlight some of these books and, you know, how they speak to, you know, Caribbean belonging?
2: Yeah. So thank you for the question. One of the things that was interesting to me is that um, I chose not to do just novels, per se, because I wanted to focus on how belonging was thematized. And it seemed to me that the young adult genre leaned into that a lot more clearly than, say, um, just regular literary novels. I also knew that it's it's having a, a real moment that it connects with folks beyond adolescence and especially those who want to learn about parts of the world with which they are not familiar. So I had previously written about Julia Alvarez's young fic, young adult fiction. So in this instance for the book, I wanted to look at, say, for example... Edward Danticat and her novel on which is about Haitian American uh, twins who then suffer a medical emergency, shall we say? And that book is very rich and it talks about the complexity of going through life as a Haitian American uh, for the twins. That's different from the experience of their parents who immigrated to the United States. And then there's even the grandparents. So there's three generations there. And because you have um, twins, then you have two ways of possibly experiencing this. And that is a thoughtful and substantive novel um, that touched on some really difficult topics, you know, among them, um, human trafficking, which but does so in an unexpected way. So that really kind of screamed, like, look at me seriously. And then I want to say that there are some, the, the examples I chose, I would have, if they didn't have a label of young adult, I would have taught them in a class without having to explain that they were a young adult because they're so complex and fully realized. So um, with the Fire on High, for example, um, discusses, which is Acevedo, right? So it discusses teenage pregnancy, but in a really non stereotypical way. It talks about generations of family who are making connections to their American neighbors, whether it's through relationships or where they live and how one's uh reaction to difficulty it could be trauma or it could be difficulty manifests differently depending on how the the family member identifies so uh, Imoni's dad loses his wife at a certain point this happens before the novel starts so it's not a spoiler and so he lets his mother raise our um, main character who then herself becomes a teenage mother but but he then the way he copes with grief, losing his African American wife, is to move to Puerto Rico and become very, very invested in a kind of a pro-independence uh, activism, and really know a lot more about the history than he ever did before. He was raised in Philadelphia, but for Iboni, who has uh, Iboni who has the child as a fourteen-year-old, that so her relationship that she maintains her um, ties with her mother's family is preserved through letters. So there's an epistolary dimension to this. There's an interaction between Amoni and her grandmother who raised her, and then her father, who is a a bit of a spectral uh, figure. And then with this teenage student trying to figure out high school and her plans for taking care of her daughter, her interactions with the child. So again, how much of the Puerto Rican culture that's such a fact of her father and her grandmother, does the money pass down to her daughter? How much of her black culture that is a part of her mother, but also the, the baby's father, does she pass down and how does she blend the two together and how is that a distinct way of being, uh, Afro Puerto Rican from Afro Puerto Ricans in the United in the island who don't have American blackness as a defining aspect of their identity, so it's really complex but beautifully written and engaging. And then the rest of the novels I look at in this chapter also really thematize kinship uh, but difference from. Uh, the, the situation of African-Americans. And so I thought that was very interesting. It's an instance where you can kind of affirm um, allyship without, and, and reject anti-blackness. Um, and all of these novels try to do that in some way. That's not always the case, of course, in the book I look at ways in which Caribbean folks participate or instigate anti-blackness for their own purposes.
1: But uh, it's interesting because so much of why is these coming-of-age stories and the conflicts and difficulties that these characters have to go through as they, you know, figure out who they are and, you know, realize um, the identity. And so it was interesting seeing, like, figuring out the Caribbean-American identity and negotiating between, you know, different aspects of that, you know, between America and American aspects of... At um, different um, the aspects of um, where their parents came from, as you mentioned, and so on. So it it is really interesting to see how that played out and it being so um, engaging, in, in, even in our a, a YA format. I, I think I might have to read some of these after. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I do recommend them. They're not they're not fluff, and I you know it helped me kind of draw attention to the quote unquote civilizing role that that schools play in all of our upbringings, right? The way in which the, the schools act as a tool of the state to form future citizens and in and, and reaction to that. So you're you raised in a particular way at home. And at the end of your schooling, you become your own adult. And so my argument here is that they were Caribbean children, the characters at home, and they were Americanized by their schooling. And so at the end, they emerge as Caribbean and American. So that's, that's where the belonging gets forged. And we see that arc throughout. Whereas in, in contrast, I would say that the, the chapter with the picture books, it, it uses small children to look at either how children make community with one another or how children are part of a larger community. And so in that way, we look at issues of belonging.
1: Right. Um, w- one of the things I wanted to highlight um, specifically in relation to the chapter on YA, is that um, one of these, I, I think it was a novel, it was the one based on the story of um, Lisette, I think the Cuban-American, it actually gener- It had real-world consequences in terms of generating a lot of outrage um, among students at the University of Nebraska. Um, can you explain this incident and like its implications?
2: Oh my goodness. Yeah, that was very interesting because it was uh, one of the chosen novels um, for the first year experiences. So it's called, the novel is called Make Your Home Among Strangers and uh, various different universities had adopted this as the book that all their first year students would read. And so the, the author was invited Give a talk, and and the students had supposedly read this book, and as part of that, white students and a campus decided to um, have a book burning protest uh, for having the the author on campus. They wanted to say that the novel's depiction of white characters as privileged was unfair, unclear. Since that incident happened, it, it was filmed, and someone put. Uh, made a tweet about the incident and had the the video embedded within it. And so it went viral. And sadly, that's what the novel was reduced to a critique of white privilege when really it's not, it's a real thoughtful investigation of the, of the obstacle some Caribbean families put before their own children and, and their opportunity to pursue education and, in some ways, forge a path that's distinctly different from that of their their home environment. So Lisette was had the chance to pursue an education at a private university in the United St- in the United States. So she was from Florida, so it was in, in New England, and um, it would be paid for because of affirmative action. And so the mother and the father both had discouraged her from applying because they thought they could not afford it. And the, the parents and then the sister all felt threatened that Lizette pursuing her education would mean that she thought she was better than either mom or dad or her sister who had tried to um, uh, have her boyfriend commit to a marriage uh, because she got pregnant. So, the We've only sadly seen a, an exacerbation of such knee-jerk reactions against books that explore the higher ed landscape in the United States. And uh, then the, we have had parents groups actively ban books either from school libraries or from local libraries. So this has gotten worse. And book burning has now become a part of our uh, everyday life. And this this novel kind of had that initial shocking reception, which
0: sadly became more commonplace. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? you need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. That's
1: very sad to hear. Um, honestly, um, I-, I knew um, there was also, there's also this issue, I think in Florida where they ban books as well, and I it just seems so, you know, just counterproductive in a lot of ways to the, to the progress that America, you know, sh- I mean, should want to be making in terms of you know inclusivity and and so yeah. on. So,
2: I mm-hmm. um, would think so, but that's why I wanted to talk about that. It's because it, this this book burning incident took place during the the Trump administration, but but now we're in a Biden administration and parents and, and various different groups who are afraid of difference and afraid of confronting, um, the, just the historical path, you know, there has been discrimination, there has been slavery, there has been, um, Redlining, there has been all these things have happened. So their efforts to ban books is to stop people talking about the um, parts of our collective history that that showcase the errors that people have committed, that the, the narrow-mindedness that was enacted into law. And the, these efforts are misguided because those histories don't go away just because you ban a book about it. Right, It's just fewer people are aware of how ill-conceived those measures were and how much further we had gotten to. Now we're reverting back to discriminating more openly and happily, which I find troubling. So I think that Caribbean Americans, because of their complex identities and insistence on being recognized as complex people with with a variety of experiences um, can intervene in these very polarizing binary discussions in the United States, at least.
1: Um, definitely. Um, I've, I, I think um, maybe another character that you also talked about that I think uh, has been maybe more Culturally accepted mm-hmm. um, is Miles Morales, you know. Um, yes, into the Spider Verse, uh, yeah. across the Spider Verse now. Mm-hmm. You know, extremely popular comic book movies in America and internationally. I, I've seen them like maybe five times. So,
2: yeah. um, <laughs> uh, my son has uh, the video games as well. Yeah, me, me too.
1: <laughs> okay.
2: I'm not so, t- coordinated enough to play them. I just like to
1: look. <laughs> But it, yeah, it's um, you featuring, um, you know, that character, that that story. That's probably one of the reasons why I, I chose to interview you for this book. So
2: oh,
1: yeah. I thought it was so interesting that, you you know, you, you someone would talk about this in such a, you know, academic forum as a, a book like this. So you know, <laughs> I was like, great. Like it, it you know, it meets, um, you know, best, best of what was here for me. So I, really um want to talk to you about this right so in these movies and the comic books they're they're based off of um all right the person behind the mask is no longer peter parker it's miles morales uh he's a black and puerto rican teenage boy from brooklyn new york so um yeah what are the implications of miles depictions in his movies um and these comic books um you know, in relation to Caribbean American belonging. So.
2: Well, yet again, it provided these these texts about Miles Morales provided an opportunity for um, both the distinction between what it's what it is to have allyship and embody both the African American and the Caribbean experience, and also it changes the narrative because we have a heroic black. Boy, right, and 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 Caribbean, Latin, Afro-Latino boy as well, and those are roles into which we rarely have the opportunity to, to celebrate celebrate um, Caribbeanness or Black male identity, right? So so often we are seeing uh, in the United States, at least, um, Black young men being killed by police or being demonized and as criminals or, or portrayed as powerless and victims. And so I think that, that it's so affirming to see that not only is Miles Morales um, the hero, but that he exists in a world in which his mom has one set of expectations for him, you know, speak better Spanish, don't fail your Spanish class. His dad has another set of expectations and he lives in that in between again, in relation to both cultures and forming something his, his own. I also think that it was a good innovation to the Spider-Man myth to not kill off the parents, at least in the initial, um, film, you know, and so there are versions in the comics that include grandma, <laughs> the Puerto Rican grandmother, and. Uh, But I did find troubling, though, the trend I noticed in the video game versions to lighten the mother's, the Puerto Rican mother's skin tone. Um, Uh, Yeah, I did notice that as well, yeah. And again, so it's why make her look like J-Lo when she began looking like Rosie Perez? I mean, it's just this impulse to try and assimilate characters created to represent Caribbean or black folks into lighter and lighter skin tone versions of themselves. I find troubling. I wanted to call attention to that. Um, I also think it's an interesting, I, I love the novelization by Jason Reynolds. It's, Well done. It's really well done. And I know novelizations are one of those funny genres that people think, oh, well, it's knockoff. I would strongly recommend reading that to anybody who wants to understand Miles Morales, because Jason Reynolds is an award winning um, young adult writer who has created a whole complex world into which you really understand Miles's turmoil, feeling he has so many obligations to do right by his parents, do right and and make the most of the opportunity he's been given to attend this prestigious school, uh, which again, he does so in a scholarship, so it brings back the scholarship boy kind of um, trope that I investigated in my second book, looking at the burden you feel, you know, you can't just be a kid going to school, you have to not make it a bad investment for whoever's funding you. And then you have to do right by your parents and represent both their culture. So it's exhausting to add then having to save the world on a regular basis to that sounds like a lot of, of, of difficulty, but I think he bears up with it. And we have in him a character who is in language and talks about how difficult it is to belong, you know, so I thought he this really fit nicely within the rubric that I had set for the book.
1: Yeah, definitely And one other thing I wanted to highlight I think um, in the discussion um, in relation to that chapter and that character uh, I think um, I think the word platino was used um, Miles Morales is a platino character but I've some um, critics have mentioned often that the black aspect of the identity is often, um, given more focus than the Latino aspect. Um, could you comment on that?
2: Well I would say that definitely in my experience the black aspect is in the forefront of the comic book versions And then in the film versions the the Latino has a little bit more because of that interplay, the tension with the mother. So the bulk of the action, of course, happens with him as, as the way he would be racialized in interaction. So his Blackness is defining. But I think the movies do a better job of, uh, in the novelization as well, of highlighting he is both Black, but he has an Afro-Latina heritage as well, which is distinct. I like Latino and it's a term that could have been applied to Imani when I was talking about with the fire on high, but she doesn't apply it to herself. Um, But it's it's an effort to recognize that there are distinct ways of experiencing one's Blackness, whether one is Afro-Latino and coming from a context in which one is not American, right? And then when one has a a Black parent who is part of the African-American experience, I wanted to highlight a character that doesn't inevitably choose one or the other, but has both. So no matter how much the, the comic books emphasize Black culture, he always has that Puerto Rican last name, Morales, which is unusual, right? He marks him as an outsider because he would have had his dad's last name. Uh, And the the film does a really funny play on that. Um, You know?
1: I actually, well... Because I'm such a big fan of the film, I thought about that way before I read it in your book and like tried to research it. But there's really no clear answer in the comics books either, as far as I could see. So,
2: well, there's that um... funny moment where he's like, "He would have been Miles Davis." Oh, yeah, <laughs> he's
1: a he's a jazz singer, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he was a trumpeter. Trumpeter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a funny thing because of course his his father then has his father's name jefferson davis was a confederate <laughs> general yeah so it's late <laughs> with for something that's such you know fluff as entertainment it actually has quite a bit of thought behind it and so that's why i wanted to elevate it to the kind of conversation and suggest to folks that even popular culture engages you your your in intellect fully, it doesn't mean you can't also have a good time, but it asks you to think about the politics of naming, the politics of of having the name of a super racist if you are a person of color, you know, and of living up to a, a some celebrity's name if you are just a random kid trying to become an adult, right? So it's it's complex.
1: Yeah, I, I think um the complexity they explore in any in, any in storylines, any movie and I, I guess any any the, the novelization they mentioned, I um, might have to check that out too. That, that um exploration of an identity as well, you know. Um I think that it speaks to it contributes to the popularity of the movies. You know, people see themselves in that character uh, as well. So um yeah, definitely. Uh, why I wanted to also ask you, maybe moving away from Miles to Maybe some less popular comic book characters that you mentioned, um, White Tiger, America Chavez, right? Not they've not reached the same level of mainstream popularity. Um, oftentimes you see them couched in other characters' stories, and very, um, very exposed to cancellation, right? I, what do you think are the dynamics that play? that explain this lack of popularity in mainstream discourse? You know, is it just marketing issues? Is it that Caribbean American stories do really appeal to mainstream America? Well, maybe Miles is just an outlier. Or are there any deeper issues at play?
2: Well, it's an interesting thing because there's a problem with the way that the whole comic book um series work. And I would say the most high profile cancellations of a comic book series would have to be, um, the Black Panther, um, and, and Roxanne Gay, who's Haitian American had written one of those, um, in collaboration with another. Um, so that shows you a successful franchise in movies, a very successful early, um, comic book character who is not Caribbean, but, but who has achieved a certain level of, of fame. And then the moment you get a a Caribbean American uh, writer involved, you only have one or two issues, you know, (laughs) in someone with as big a name as Roxanne Gay, but, but yeah, so you only get one or two issues. Um, it's, so it's part of the fact that you have to have people buy things before they actually come out. So it's a real, it's the opposite of streaming, right? So you have to show demand before the product even hits the production. And once it does, then you can't produce more. And if, so that, it seems that that is ripe for disruption, I would say. And, and I would point to uh, a couple things. So um, Emega Chavez showed up on the big screen recently. So since I finished that chapter and the book was in production in the Doctor Strange and the multi, the Universe of Madness, uh, she was there, but they didn't pause to explain her Caribbean connection, right? It's a vaguely Latina-like uh, woman, but without much in the way of, of explanation or exploration of why she is someone who is identified with Puerto Ricanness. And so I go into that in the chapter. But um, I think the most recent Miles Morales version does talk about um, the earlier Latino versions of Spider-Man, Miguel, uh, and I forgot his last name right now. O'Hara, Miguel O'Hara. <laughs> yeah, exactly. O'Hara, right. Because he's half uh, Irish American, half Mexican. And so it's, it's, again, as it's that American like you're vaguely other but we don't really want to bother with the geography or the the complex understanding of what your mix is so i would say that but um in terms of yeah so i think that's an issue of disruption of the model what does seem to work in the comic books is the the centarians right the notion of and and dr and brother voodoo. So again, things that are problematic in its juxtaposition or, or, or reification of stereotypical depictions of Caribbean folk, uh, even though one can argue that all comic books in some way stereotype people. <laughs> uh, but, but, but Dr. Voodoo, brother voodoo, involves the, the supernatural. I just think it's interesting that it never quite goes away. It keeps coming back and people... Uh, it has a bit of a resurgence in the comic book field. So again, for me, what that chapter allowed me to look at is how do we, that crossover between comic books to films in between you have um, maybe some rebooting of a franchise or making a guest appearance in a different kind of narrative and the novelizations, that whole landscape um, is, is uh, where... American uh, energy has been spending a lot of time for the past 10 years, maybe 15. And only now do we see characters who are with ties to the Caribbean showing up. And I want to welcome that, but I also want to say, hey, can we also read about them?
1: (laughs) Yeah, um, definitely. A lot of stereotypes do come up, some of them problematic. Um, But it's kind of complicated because at the same time you do see exposure of you know Caribbean Americans this identity aspects of their culture in some ways you know getting some some sort of a, a mainstream appeal you know so
2: yes and so hmm. i was i was very happy to see that America Chavez showed up in doctor strange maybe people would be interested in google her and then find out so much more about her right so i'm always thinking that exposure is key because then people can who connect with her in those brief moments can look more about and develop fan cultures that way. I do want to kind of acknowledge that we live in a, in a media scape in which folks can continue their fandom by creating their own narratives or joining communities and using social media. So there are afterlives that will, I think, manifest more clearly. So I'm hoping that exposure helps promote that. But you know the other thing I wanted to say about Miles Morales is that he is, in some ways, the flip side of someone who is really problematic in a real life person, and that's Enrique Tarrio, who is the the Afro Cuban leader of the Proud Boys, right? So here you have someone who is is just the face of an organization that's based on exclusion and um, glorifying Western values that are really anti black, even though. He himself identifies as Afro-Cuban. And um, so it's problematic. I think we've reached a point where we can have Caribbean Americans on, on good and bad sides of an issue.
1: Yeah, it, It's um, a good thing you brought it up because I was actually going to ask you about that um, next. Um, specifically with regard to, to that chapter on Enrique Tario, I think you also mentioned um, Kim, Kimberly Guilfoyle was involved in the uh, Trump campaign. Uh, what, I, what I found interesting is that in that chapter, you focus on aspirational whiteness. And you you talk about the narratives of um, these, I guess, classify them as white supremacist individuals belonging to white supremacist organizations. Uh, and you also talk about um, Tiffany Drayton's memoir, Black Refugee, um, which she the crisis, system, systemic, and personal racism, see experience growing up um, as an immigrant, I think, to America. Uh, could, you, could I want to know if you could elaborate on the connection between these three narratives uh, a bit more. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, you know, they're very interesting. I want to I speak about Tiffany Drayton there. What I found interesting is it, she's very open about the experiences that um, she had in interacting with others. So negative side of relation is that when people really uh, discriminate against you personally because of who you are, where you're from. And that's very hurtful. What I thought she did that was interesting um, was to, to highlight how the school system, kind of echoing what the, what the young adult novels do, makes students have to identify with um, categories that are coded in whiteness. So to be an honor student is to want to, in essence, be white or not want to be like the other black kids who are not academically gifted. And that's a very difficult subject position to inhabit and to write about. My my real beef with with her memoirs that I wanted to hear about what it's like to live in Trinidad and Tobago, having grown up in the states, and there's very little reference. Like I don't know what what Island she lives in. I don't know what she does, you know? And so it's very interesting because she, she admits to things that are difficult to talk about. And I appreciate that because it gives a a real insight into how institutions can uh, force you to practice or, or function in ways that work against blackness. And so that's interesting. Now, the other two, um, Kimberly Guilfoyle and uh, Enrique Tarrio are interesting. I like. I wanted to. I don't like them. This is, I find it very a- <laughs> right clear. But but what I the reason I, I gave them uh, time in this book is because they leveraged their ties to the Caribbean. Uh, and in Kimberly Guilfoyle's case, she constantly talks about her Puerto Rican mother when she wants to, as a as an opening to then critique things that are unrelated to what her mom, her mom was a teacher and she uses that to critique uh, Biden for being um, communist because of his support of Venezuela. And the, the cognitive leap between her mom and what she stood for and what she wants to attack is very far, but she literally juxtaposes one with the other as a way of speaking as a Latina, whereas most of the time she doesn't herself identify as Caribbean in any way. She's someone who is interesting, like uh, Miguel O'Hara, whatever his name was. (laughs) O'Hara. O'Hara, thank you. Uh, Like Miguel O'Hara, her dad's Irish uh, and her mom was Puerto Rican. So she she has both um, heritages. And most of the time she operates out of whiteness and the privilege that gives her. But every so often when it's convenient for her to connect with a group the Trump organization was seeking to grow, such as, um, you know, Latinos. So then she reminds people that she's her mother's Puerto Rican. Um, and her, yeah, I. That's the only book I actually re- got out of the library. I refused to give money. <laughs> 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 um, and then Enrique Tarrio's interesting in a different kind of way in some way he is the most public face of a phenomenon that's been affecting white supremacists or or hate-based organizations in the united states in the past five six years and that is they're very diverse and in the reason they're diverse is because all sorts of people look towards sadly usually it's anti-blackness that drives this effort to identify with the goals of white supremacy so while you might like Enrique Tarrio never says I'm white he always says I'm Afro-Cuban um the systems of power he supports don't benefit other Afro-Cubans they, and they as a matter of fact the most explicit action he performs is is bringing down or desecrating Black Lives Matters banners, right? So, as someone who identifies as Afro-Cuban, he the, the actions he performs are against blackness, even though he says that what he supports are Western values. So, I wanted to acknowledge that that the legacy of the groups that come from the Caribbean and try and make life in the United States has included, it's by no means everyone, but, but has included active um, anti-blackness to then emerge as alternatives, acceptable alternatives to problematic blackness. And that's a discourse we need to acknowledge and break, right? We can't, as Caribbean Americans, succeed at the expense of our black American, um, you know, fellow Americans. That's, that's unacceptable.
1: Yeah, um, it's another in, in a I guess a long line of disturbing trends taking place in the United States. Um, as you mentioned, I think um, Kimberly Guilfoyle and Enrique Tarrio. Another name comes to mind. Maybe you've heard of him, Nick Fuentes. I think is another person of I think la- Latino descent as well, who is a, a, another leader of a white supremacist organization. And it seems that this um, this keeps happening. So I'm. Um, I, I don't know what's going on in America <laughs> uh it, it's very um well i well interesting i get in in a, in a bad way but uh, that that just um seems to be the case when minority populations are taking up the mantle of, of white supremacy quite frankly it doesn't make sense to me um but, but,
2: but it's this, happening. this
1: is happening it's happening it's in yeah.
2: I mean Asian Americans and uh, you know people from every ethnic group it's that's why it's aspirational whiteness so it's 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 an, a quest after power, the power that the majority has, not necessarily um, the lightening of the skin, although often it manifests by you know a whole process of trying to lighten your skin and of trying to diminish any kind of, um, ethnically marked um, aspect of you. You change your name, you try and speak with a more uh, standard vocabulary as opposed to distinctive vocabularies. I mean, it's an effort to really remake yourself in the image of the other. And, you know, we can go back to black skin, white masks. I mean, it's not this is not new, but it's happening. It's happening within hate organizations, which I find ironic, right? So that's why the backlash against diversity and uh, and inclusion is because it has now succeeded <laughs> in bad ways. Um, I, I wanted to acknowledge that the the Caribbean American legacy. It, it, the impact in race relations has been good on the one hand, but also bad on the one on the other hand. And, and I thought it was important to me as an academic that I don't paint an overly positive uh, picture of how Caribbean Americans have impacted the society. When I know for a fact that uh, oftentimes this has happened at the expense of allyship and and helpful work towards um, the lessening of of the the. Discrimination that our African American colleagues face. Uh,
1: moving away from white supremacy, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I want to ask um, this something I thought about. Are there any common or unifying teams, you might call it, um, that connected all the different works um, from the wide variety? of artistic mediums you explored. But well, for me personally, um, I think I see, I saw family, you know, being a very important, uh, maybe trope, you might call it, for the American, the Caribbean American characters in these stories. Um, real people as well um, for the memoirs and um, works like that. So, yeah, uh, what is the significance of this and any other unifying teams you might have found and? want to comment
2: on? Well, so family is definitely a, a big trope. The other one is just calling oneself American. I mean, it, because I'm Puerto Rican, there's such a reticence to embrace that aspect of our citizenship status, right? And so I'm I'm really interested in how these characters felt that the United States was where their life was ex- obviously except for <laughs> a black refugee, right? Uh, but that that the United States was belonged to them, and that they belong as well. And so I'm intrigued that these narratives in all the various different mediums make that case. Make that case. I am American, and we are American. So the use of "we," I think, would be the other kind of. Um, big trope, right? So it's, it's looking to build a future for this place rather than looking at alternatives to the United States. So in that way, I find all the narratives hopeful, um, it, even the bad ones, because they, they are building community and they are looking for a future. And so that's, that's one way. I mean, think about Hamilton and the musical and how so many people who didn't really care about uh, revolutionary history all of a sudden found a connection to the founding of the United States through a very Puerto Rican version of a founding father uh, you know and there that, that that whole non-traditional casting which allowed people from a variety of backgrounds to see themselves as Americans so the use of we I'm not sure that the word we shows up in everything, but these narratives are holding up a mirror to to what it looks like to be American. So in that regard, you know, in the intro, I make this this gesture towards the America Ferrara book, um, I Am an American, you know, or American Like Me, and, and it expands that notion of who can be American. Well,
1: I... Yeah, I think that's a uh, you know very you know, powerful um, you know, way of um, seeing things, and um, the, you know, the hope that you know goes into you know that conception of identity. You know, um, the I guess I think we we're above the hour, um, ten minutes above the hour, a, a bit more. And to wrap up, the last question I'll ask is. You know, what do you hope to see, um, you know, for the future of maybe um, cultural products where real persons, you know, fictional characters of Caribbean American origin are featured or just Caribbean Americans in general in the United States?
2: Well, I hope that, yes, I hope that Caribbean American stories are part of the fabric of how we think of um the american story and i think too often we focus on the us colonialism of the caribbean its its cultural imperialism and i want to kind of make space for narratives of people from caribbean heritage enjoying being both caribbean and american and not having to constantly give geography lessons as as we talked about at the beginning right So that that's something that people don't say, really? Where's that? Um, But rather an expansive understanding of what it means to be American with Caribbean heritage, you know, and making a difference. I I think that is happening. So I just wanted to kind of note it. And then, um, you know, it's already time that somebody writes a book about Bad Bunny and how he's putting forward that agenda even further through his music and refusing to do it in English and just and, and Rihanna and how that complicates our notions. But, but I wanted to look at narratives where people took the time or performances where they take the time to talk us through that process of becoming um, a member of, of a community so that the United States becomes their chosen country as well as their country of origin. Does that make sense?
1: it makes a lot of sense. And I think Bad Bunny and Rihanna is a perfect note to end on. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. um, Just before we officially end, I want to ask, you know, what's next for you? Are you hoping to build on the ideas you explored in the book in, in any way? Any new material you're working on or have out? Anything you would like to bring attention to at all?
2: Well, um, there's a chapter I decided to leave out of the book because um, I wanted to focus on the more recent achievements of Caribbean Americans. So I'm, I'm working on an article tracing the campaigns and the careers really of Shirley Chisholm and Colin Powell. Uh, Shirley Chisholm of Barbadian American uh, extraction and then Colin Powell's Jamaicanness, and look at how they invoke their Caribbean ties and their narratives. The next book I think I want to work on is looking at um, Caribbean narratives in Canada. Um, that just literature written because I, you know, I love Canada, but it's so cold. And I thought it was bad enough to move to the United States. So I want to understand um, that diasporic experience more. So
1: that's um, interesting because I think the Caribbean diaspora in Canada is maybe even given less attention to the yeah. Caribbean Americans. So <laughs> that's, that's great. You know. Yeah. I, well, yeah. Um, maybe when you do eventually finish that book, we could meet again and have a conversation about it. I'd love to have you back on. So,
2: thank you. That sounds great.
1: <laughs> so, uh, before we say goodbye, um, let everyone know where they could find Caribbean American narratives on of belonging, and where they could find you.
2: Well. You can find the book either from Ohio State University Press or through any of your online um, book stores. I don't want to just promote anyone, Um you can order it that way. And then you can find me at, um, I am now, you know, I'm on Twitter as at Halloran Vivian, for whatever reason, I have the last name first and then Vivian. And then at V. H-A-L-L-O-R-A at iu.edu You can email me if you have any questions or interest. I always like to hear about what people think of the book. And I'm also on threads, but I have no idea what my... If you type in Vivian Halloran on threads, I'm sure I come up. I just joined it. I'm trying to find alternatives to Twitter.
1: I might have to join threads, too. I haven't made the jump yet, but um, yeah. Okay, that's great. I... You might get a new follower on Twitter <laughs> or Trends sometime soon. Sounds so, good. Vivian, thanks so much for having this conversation. I think it went really great. So much interesting um, works and books and comic book movies that we got to talk about. Uh, you- it was a, a conversation unlike any other I had discussing <laughs> Into the Spider Verse. Right. Oh, so <laughs> I had a good time. Thanks Me so too. much for. Great. Thanks so much for having to doing this with me and wish you all the best
0: with everything
1: I do in the future.